Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's late 1922, and Auntie Beeb has been on air for three weeks, functioning just on goodwill, meringues, gin, and an enthusiastic band of engineers, pioneers, and listeners' ears. But no staff. Isn't it about time somebody ran this thing? This time, the first four appointments at the BBC, General Manager, Director of Programmes, Secretary and Chief Engineer. The interviews, the first staff, the arrival of John Reith, who at this point knows nothing of broadcasting. And bang up to date, our very special guest who knows a lot about broadcasting. And he wasn't there at the start, but pretty much was. He's been doing it since the 50s. I mean, that's seven of the 11 decades of broadcasting. Three words for you. Diddy David Hamilton. Part one of his interview with us here on season two, episode three of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast. It's Paul Carenza here. It's you there. Delighted to have you with us. Very excited to have David Hamilton on the show today as well. Boom Radio. Yes, that's his new venture. I think he's the oldest broadcaster to launch a radio station or the oldest broadcaster to have a regular show on British radio at the moment. Either way, he's record-breaking. He's been doing it since the 50s and I had a fantastic interview with him. Such a lovely, generous person. What stories he has as well. The Beatles, the Stones, the Pythons, so many things to get into. Uh, we'll probably take a couple of episodes to do it, so this episode will be part one of that. So this episode will cover from December the 7th to December the 16th, 1922. That sounds quite specific, I'm well aware. We are taking the story of British broadcasting one stage at a time. And at this point, we start getting a workforce and indeed a boss in John Reith. You may have heard of him. And in this week and a bit, we've got the interviews, the hiring of the first four founding fathers, let's call them that, of the BBC. Now, of course, we're talking about the first employees of the BBC. And I hasten to add every episode that I am not one. I am a freelancer who occasionally freely lances for the BBC and other organisations. But this is not a podcast made for with about here and under in any way to do with the current day British Broadcasting Corporation. We're talking about the origins of the British Broadcasting Company. Is that clear? Goodo. It's just a one-man operation here, hello, which is why I'm ever glad of your ratings, reviewings, sharings, patreoning, all those sorts of things. If you want to support us, you know how. But hear this, we are not the BBC. The BBC began with six weeks or so of almost pre-BBC BBC-ness. Now, if you've listened to the previous episodes, you'll know what I mean by that. British broadcasting had got underway and had got the go-ahead to start before they could even hire anyone to do it. There was no funding, there was no licence at this point, the company wasn't fully registered, so the London, Birmingham and Manchester stations were on air, run by people who worked for the wireless companies like Marconi's and Metrovic. They managed the three individual stations. So you've got people like Arthur Burroughs and Stanton Jeffries in London, Percy Edgar and A.E. Thompson in Birmingham, and Kenneth Wright and Hugh Bell in Manchester, with a few others in those locations too. Running the show in London, Arthur Burroughs said two years later, In three different parts of Britain, there were, functioning nightly, three groups of men who had never met, who had no precedent to work upon, and not the faintest idea of what the future would bring forth in the matter of a balance sheet. To run the show, maybe they need someone from outside it. These plucky pioneers working without a balance sheet particularly, essentially doing it for the fun of it or being paid peanuts, cranked the handle of broadcasting. And a century later, podcasts blooming everywhere. You can't move for them. 
But also, new radio stations have been starting all the time. So before we go back to the BBC origin story, let's hear from one of the voices behind one of the newest radio stations in Britain. He's gone from Forces Radio to Boom Radio via Radios 1 and 2 and pretty much everything else. Before we go back to the very start of the BBC and its first employees, I'm delighted to introduce David Hamilton. Well, it's extraordinary, really, because David Lloyd, who is... uh, you know, you probably know about David. He's a very successful radio man. Um, he's a radio historian as well as producer and uh, and performer. And he called me towards the end of last year. We had worked together before. And he said, look, I'm putting this project together. Would you be interested in doing some shows for us? And I said, uh, absolutely. So he said, the great thing is that you can do them from home. Uh, I said, well, there's only one problem there. I don't have a studio. So he said, ah, oh, but we can give you studio so they've given me a very nice uh, microphone uh, which is here there it very is good. and a nice pair of headphones and uh, all the music's on the computer so I do everything from home I don't have to travel I don't have to mix with anybody and I don't have to wear a mask so perfect that's fantastic and you know in terms of uh, the industries that can adapt in this uh, these pandemic times the radio industry seems to have done that really rather well and indeed be a great great service for people who are stuck at home and constant companion i suppose it has and i've got a feeling that this is going to be the future because i think having done this uh, they're not going to then say I'll tell you what we'll we'll rent this building and mm. we'll pay the rates and the electricity and the lighting uh, and so on and the heating um when everybody can do it from home so we're all broadcasting from home one from spain one from france and the rest from the uk so it's great we all met up uh the night before the launch and uh, we met up like this and we had a zoom meeting in the evening and um i think they showed a certain amount of style because they sent us all a bottle of champagne with with their logo on it so we all were told don't open it until saturday night so we all opened we un uncorked the champagne and uh, we drank a toast to the success of the station i can't think of many stations that have started off uh, offering me a bottle of champagne so it was very nice very very nice too well you've you've certainly been part of of many radio stations over the years and uh, and i was thinking if we can go back to the to, to the start i, I can't, there can't be many broadcasters who, who would be say they started in the in the 50s and i think you 59 was it you you began your yeah that's baby. right i was only it was only just in the 50s it was, as you say, 1959. I was doing my national service in the RAF, and prior to that, I'd been a scriptwriter at ATV. I had a nice little job. I was loving it, and uh, then I got called up for national service, and I had no interest in firing guns and, and being a, a soldier or an airman in this particular case. I joined the Air Force. I was posted to Germany, quite close to the studios of the British Forces Network broad broadcasting station which today is bfbs and i went along to see the boss there um it was just a bus ride from the camp into the studios in cologne and i said to him look i'm a scriptwriter. can you use me here so he said well actually we don't have scriptwriters, but we do at the moment need someone to read the football results on saturday <laughs> afternoon so i was a great fa- uh, football fan and i knew that it was all about inflection you know um Chelsea one, Fulham two. (laughs) And so I quite enjoyed doing that. But I said to him one day, I said, all this music that you play, Bing Crosby and Peggy Lee, it's fine for the officers, but the troops want rock and roll. 
So I don't think he knew what rock and roll was. But anyway, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a show on Sunday afternoon. So on Sunday afternoon, it was one of the I was one of the first people to do a rock and roll radio show. And I played the music of Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Chuck. Berry and Elvis Presley, who was in Germany at the same time doing his national service with the U.S. Army. I think Elvis was in Frankfurt and uh, I was in Cologne, so I didn't actually meet him. But um, I did play his records and I wondered if he ever listened and heard. You know? It'd be amazing that he was there able to listen to that. That's fantastic. Yeah. More from David Hamilton later in this episode and indeed on a future episode. He had so much to say. I think we better take a few episodes to say it. Now from Boom Radio to the Radio Boom Oh yes, I like that link very much indeed. On episode 15, we featured John Reith and his backstory. We left him in mid-October applying for a job as general manager of this new BBC while he was working as a political secretary for Sir William Bull. There are two Sir Williams in this story with nicely ironic names to tell you who's who. You've got Sir William Bull, the politician, Reith's original boss, and you've got Sir William Noble, the chairman of the Broadcasting Committee, potentially Reith's future boss. So if you can't remember which Sir William is which, well, the politician's bull, the broadcaster's noble. Yeah, says it all. Well, Sir William Noble writes to John Reith on December the 7th, 1922, asking him to come and interview as general manager. You might recall that Reith applied when he saw an advert in the newspaper a couple of months earlier. He even retrieved his application from the postbox when he realised that Sir William Noble was from Aberdeen like his family. The insertion of an extra line to say, my family might know your family, may have sweetened the deal. In his diary on being asked for interview, Reith writes, Most exciting. Seems like an excellent job for me. And a decade later, Reith adds a note to this diary entry. Actually, I had little idea what it was. The radio boom had passed Reith by. He wouldn't have heard then, on the day that he got that letter, entertain a Vivian Foster on air as the Vicar of Mirth. Reith would have been partial to the Vicar part, but not so partial to Mirth. Or any of 2ZY Manchester on that day, where they took a break from the mostly gramophone records that they would play, for a vaudeville performance from Herbert Harwood, Ada Lodge and a Mr Reed. It went so well that station boss Kenneth Wright asked Harwood afterwards, May I be so bold as to ask if you'd be good enough to bring the same party again to broadcast same evening? If you could bring a violinist also, it would be a very desirable feature, inasmuch as many people's receiving sets distort violin tone less than speech or song. Reith also would not have heard the day after that interview request. On 2.0 London, Charles Penrose performed The Laughing Policeman. I know a fat old policeman, he's always on our street. A fat and jolly red-faced man, he really is a treat. Penrose was double-act partner of Billy Whitlock, who we heard last episode with his comedy xylophone act. Britain has indeed got talent. (laughs) This day of December the 8th was possibly the first day that listings appeared covering all stations on one page. After all, in much of the country, you could hear London, Birmingham, Manchester, Paris, The Hague. Hold your cat's whisker of your crystal set in the right position. Who knows what you'll hear? Well, you'll know what you'll hear if you read the Derby Daily Telegraph. Today's broadcasting. From Witten, wavelength 420 metres, 6.30pm children's stories, 7 and 10pm news, 7.15 to 10, a concert from the Ivories Jazz Band. Mr Harold Casey, baritone and soon-to-be assistant manager of the Birmingham station. Miss Emily Rudge, contralto, and Mr G Venables, accompanist. Meanwhile in London, wavelength 369 metres... 6.30pm news, 8pm concert, 9pm news, 9.30pm concert. You'll have to tune in to find out who's playing. And in Manchester, wavelength 385 metres, at 5.55pm, call up, 
6pm Children's Story, 6.15pm News, 6.30pm Children's Story, 6.50pm Play a Piano Forte Recital. In other words, one of those automatic pianos with sheets of paper with holes in. 7.30pm An Entertainer, unnamed. 8 to 9.10 p.m. Music. Very precise here in Manchester. 9.15 News and 9.25 More Music. Or from Paris at the Eiffel Tower station, wavelength 2,600 metres, from 6.20 to 6.50pm, a concert in French. And it does say that in the listings. Thank you, Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, for spotting and sending us that. If you have anything to add to our story as we go along, paul at paulcarenza.com is the email address. I welcome your correspondence. But I would get correspondence of complaint if I told you what was on on December the 9th. It was G.H. Eliot with an act called the... Censored for moral, ethical and acceptability reasons. Such racist language has no place in broadcasting or podcasting. Amateur Wireless Magazine December 9th issue contains some correspondence too, largely concerning the voice of Tuolo Arthur Burroughs, who by now has applied, like Reith, for one of those first posts at the BBC. Burroughs has applied for Director of Programmes, but as for his on-air appearance, he's still finding his feet. A correspondent writes... The news bulletins are not exactly striking. There is, of course, the weather forecast, followed by cricket and billiard scores and market reports, all of which will be greatly appreciated by those who do not see the evening paper. But the rest of the programme consists too much of police court news of no particular interest and of snippy bits of the kind which harassed sub-editors generally use for filling up gaps into which nothing else will fit. You know this sort of thing. Mr Blank Dash, aged 103, has just made a flight in an aeroplane. A deported tomcat has arrived home after a journey of umpty miles, and so on. Perhaps the correspondent preferred the anarchic output of 2MT Riddle, where it seems this is the moment that wild Peter Eckersley, remember him, he's still lampooning 2LO every Tuesday evening. It did afford us some fun at Riddle to get a little stimulus from these transmissions in the way of caricature. Arthur Burroughs, the man with a golden voice, who was a very precise... And at this point, he mocks Tuolo's genteel bells, which play the Westminster chimes each night. One of the things that really impressed the public enormously about Tuolo was that when the station opened, they beat on a gong. Ping, pong, ping, pong. You know, one of those things that hang up in concert halls with little different tubes and you hit the wrong one. Well, uh, we thought we can't be outdone. And I remember we'd got all the scrap iron we could find in Riddle and beat it hard at the beginning of our thing. It was like that. We were awfully precise, too. On that letters page again. Did you hear that delightful jester, the riddle transmission, in his burlesque of two alo's new chimes? T'was done, so tis said, with two biscuit tins and an empty soda water bottle. Or, as they say, two empty bottles. A Tuolo, though, Burroughs' attention is on radio production. And really, he's the first radio producer, I would say. While his application for director of programmes is being considered... He's getting rather critical, too, of the output on the BBC radio station that he's essentially babysitting until he can get the job. So Burroughs sends this rather frank memo to his underling, Stanton Jeffries, on December the 10th. Your bells were not as good as usual. Perhaps bitter, given the week before Eckersley was lampooning those bells, and it would have been the talk of the radio community at Burroughs' expense. There was a damping effect which cut out resonance. Yeah, I think Burroughs is fuming. Kenneth Ellis comes through splendidly, but I would suggest that he turn his head just a little bit on one side to avoid jarring the microphone on some of his louder notes. Or maybe Burroughs just cares. Miss Kelmrich has the beautiful contralto voice, but one or two of her notes were almost overpowering. 
The cornet was good, but there seemed to be a lacking of fullness of tone. The piano as an instrument was passable when played by yourself, but when played automatically is horrible. It's a cross between a dulcimer and a banjo, and very tinny at that. Yeah, like the other studios across the country, Tuolo had a player piano, one that you fed sheets with holes in, and it played itself. Useful as backing music without having to have someone actually play the instrument, freeing up Mr Jeffries to be sorting out the next performer. The blot on the whole evening were the long delays between items. For wireless to succeed, everything must go with a bang. No periods of silence. Apart from the government-mandated silence, three minutes in every ten. This obsession with no radio silence continues to this day, of course. But back then, it had a better reason. Too much silence, and in those gaps, Morse code from other frequencies could stumble onto the BBC's wavelength. Pause and be usurped. That same day, John Reith, unaware of all of these radio programmes, is preparing for his interview not by listening to the BBC, but by positioning himself in the right company. William Bull said he knew Sir William Noble and was ready to go and see him, but thought it probably not advisable. That's the old boss offering to schmooze the new one. Reith always denied that Bull helped Noble get him the job, but it's thought that the politician did privately smooth things over with Reith's interviewer-to-be. On air the next night is 2LO's first vocal quartet, don't you know? 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 Well, you do now. The night after, with the job interview the next day, John Reith put it all before God. A month before he'd arrived in London, he'd gone straight to church and felt called by the minister, by God, to be the one person who could save Britain from itself. Quite a mission. Now he was praying hard that this job was his purpose in life. The next morning, December the 13th, the day of the interviews. Now, Reith actually starts the day working for his boss, Sir William Bull, MP. Reith has been a bit disillusioned since the general election, but his job continues for now. And at Reith's own personal office, during this interview, he's actually hosting a meeting of MPs. William Bull lets Reith go for the interview. But yeah, while the future of British politics is being hammered out in Reith's own office, Reith is off to Magnet House the HQ of the General Electric Company and the temporary registered office of the BBC. This will ultimately become Reith's first office. And here Reith patiently waits for his BBC interview. Like Guy Gomer, the man coming for an IT job interview at the BBC, who ended up on the news about 10 years ago. You remember him? Fun. But back at Reith's interview... Sir William Noble came out to get me and he was smiling in a confidential sort of way. Apparently Noble greeted Reith with the cordiality of an old friend. Also present at the interview were McKinstry, Binion and uh, one other. These were the wireless bosses on the broadcasting committee at the time. They didn't ask me many questions and some they did I didn't know the meaning of. The few questions included, given likely letters of complaint, could he handle correspondence? Did Reith realise that within a short time he would know everyone worth knowing in the country? Well, a decade later, Reith noted, The fact is, I hadn't the remotest idea as to what broadcasting was. I hadn't troubled to find out. If I had tried, I should probably have found difficulty in discovering anyone who knew. Yeah, we're acting like radio has taken off in this country, but only in some corners, it would seem. And it certainly hadn't reached a wreath yet. I think they'd more or less made up their minds that I was the man before they saw me, and that it was chiefly a matter of confirmation. They asked what salary I wanted. I said £2,000. Noble came to the door with me and almost winked as if to say it was all right. Well, while the interview panel deliberate and Reith goes away to pray some more, let's flash forward four decades to the 1960s and the man who was there for the rise of the Beatles, the Stones and so many more. A broadcasting legend, 
David Hamilton. When I came back to England at the end of 1960, I got a job as a television announcer in Manchester back in the days when announcers used to appear in vision in between the programmes. And ABC television had a programme called ABC at Large. And they said to me one day, knowing my interest in pop music, we've got a new group here that we'd like you to interview. Um, I think they'd only been on television once before. And they said they're coming in with the producers Said they're coming in with their manager, Brian Epstein, and also his latest protege, Jerry Marsden, um, and his band, Jerry and the Pacemakers. So will you inter interview them? So I did this interview with the Beatles. Um, I think they'd had about one or maybe two hit records at the time, but long before anybody knew that they were going to be, you know, the biggest band of all time, that 100,000 people would come to uh, Heathrow Airport to greet them when they came back from conquering America. Uh, later that year, which was 1963, um, somebody, Beatles management, maybe maybe Brian Epstein, said, look, the boys are doing a show in Manchester, the Ermston show, and will you introduce them on stage? So uh, I did. And I remembered that tickets to see the Beatles were 10 shillings. Following year, I introduced the Rolling Stones. Uh, they were at the Palace Theatre in Manchester. And in they, those days, obviously early days of, of their career, because they came along, you know, slightly after the Beatles, they, they did have, again, a couple of records in the chart. And shows were done in those days like a variety show. So you would have lots of support acts and then the Stones would come on at the end. And I had to go on and introduce the support acts. Well, all everybody wanted to see was the Rolling Stones. So <laughs> if I went out on stage, they just chanted, we want the Stones. So it's quite quite a difficult night. And uh, I remember talking to another show compere who was also a comedian. And he said, I'll give you a tip. He said, what I do, he said, when they start, you know, chanting and heckling or whatever he said i stand on my head he's on the stage and he said and i can do that for up to two minutes he said and i i just stand there on my head for about two minutes and eventually they start applauding and then i stand up and say and now ladies and gentlemen the rolling stone <laughs> so i should have learned to um stand on my head but quite a funny story about that show was that I had a little red MGB sports car that I was rather proud of at the time. And I parked it at the back of the theatre, as you could in those days. And somebody thought it was Mick Jagger's car. And they scratched a love message to him. Uh, so for a week, I was driving around with, I love you, Mick, on the bonnet of my car. <laughs> it must up in value, I'm sure. Well, um, I did. Yes, I think so. I did eventually have it resprayed. Uh, it took a bit of time. And I think the respray um, cost me more than I got for doing the show. So <laughs> I think I lost money by introducing the stones. Oh, well, you've got a, you've got a good story out of it. That's, that's what matters, I suppose, doesn't it? Yeah. I did. And I dined out on it for a, a long time since. <laughs> Here we are still. More from David soon. But back in 1922, it's December the 14th and John Reith is literally praying that he's got the job. He's even got his current boss, Sir William Bull MP, to phone chief interviewer Sir William Noble and another influential contact to write to the General Electric Company to petition on his behalf. But the Lord is mightier than all the influence in the way I could bring. At 3.45, Sir William Noble phoned to ask if I would come along to see him at once. So I took a taxi and went. He received me very nicely. So this is just one day after the interview to generally manage broadcasting. Good job it's general manager and not specific manager, as Reith still has no clue what any of this broadcasting malarkey is all about. 
The committee had unanimously recommended that I be offered the general managership of the British Broadcasting Company. He said he had tried hard to get the salary of £2,000, but some of the others didn't want it to start over £1,500, but that if things went OK, I should get a rise soon. Later, he recommended me to take £1,750, as he thought he could get that approved. After a cup of tea and a general talk, I departed. I am profoundly thankful to God in this matter. It is all his doing. There were six on the shortlist. Although actually, Reith wasn't even in the top three choices. He acts like he was a sure thing. But 55 had applied for the job. It was first offered, though, to a leading journalist called John Gordon, another Scot from Dundee, rather than Reith's Aberdeen. John Gordon was a senior editor at the Glasgow Herald's London office, and he was offered the top job of the BBC, but turned it down. The job was not big enough for him. Instead, he took a post as chief sub-editor of the Daily Express, a paper that was to lead the charge against the BBC within just a few months. More on that in a few episodes' time. But, you know, I've read in one book how John Gordon was offered this top job before Reith. I've read in another book of how the paper that he then edited took on the BBC in such a brutal fashion. I've not actually read anywhere that linked those two events together. But I'm sure that John Gordon saw this upstart BBC and either realised that he'd missed the boat or at least took against it in his new role at the Daily Express. It got personal. Gordon led the Express until the mid-50s. He started the first regular newspaper horoscope after commissioning one for the birth of Princess Margaret, which was rather popular. But long before that, he was battling Reith and the BBC for years. John Gordon, the BBC boss that got away. Another near miss was the former Postmaster General, Mr Kellaway, the man who'd introduced the licence fee and seen broadcasting through the House of Commons. Yeah, Kellaway was also considered to head up the BBC. He'd just lost his seat in Parliament and therefore his job. As you may recall from the last episode, Kellaway had a cushy directorship lined up at Marconi's, though, much to the annoyance of the BBC Board of Directors and the House of Commons. It was somewhat controversial. Is it not a fact that the late Postmaster General concluded more than one agreement with the Marconi Company, which resulted in profits to the company and consequent loss to the state? I think that is denied in the letter to which I have referred. So there are three of those considered for the general managership of the BBC. You won't find that in many books. I had to do a lot of digging to find those ones out. You've got a top journalist then, a top politician, and John Reith, the rank outsider. How different it could have been. Would you rather give control of the BBC to the printed press or to politics? Trust me, today, both would like to get their hands on it. On which, this could be a good time to tell you about a thing called the British Broadcasting Challenge. I'm nothing to do with it. I just saw what they're doing and I quite like the idea. It's a think tank to promote a wide-ranging discussion about the future of UK public service broadcasting. Armando Inucci, Frank Cultural Boyce and many top producers are involved. Its focus is really on making any inquiries about the future of the BBC public rather than happening behind the closed doors of Westminster. If you'd like to know more information, BritishBroadcastingChallenge.com is where you can see if that's for you. But back when it began, John Reith's final hurdle to the top post was to convince Godfrey Isaacs of the Marconi Company. Now, Isaacs' doubts are probably because until now Marconi's has been running the show. Employing an outsider like Reith, let alone someone with zero experience of broadcasting, it's a big question mark. So the next day, Friday 15th of December, John Reith went to see Godfrey Isaacs, head of Marconi, according to a letter received from Noble. He didn't want to agree to £1,750 without seeing me. 
He was very cordial indeed. It seemed most satisfactory. He said he would inform Noble at once that he agreed to £1,750. This was also a notable day for the BBC Board of Directors. It was the day the BBC was finally registered as a company. So although the staff wouldn't officially start until after Christmas, we now definitely, finally have a BBC. That weird month-long halfway house period was over. For the past 99 years, the BBC has claimed November the 14th as its birthday, but I think it would be nice to know what was on that first night of it being a registered, confirmed, actual company, because until now it was just BB, really, no C. So I posed this question recently on Facebook and Twitter. Do follow us there at BB Century. And in our British Broadcasting Century Facebook group, friend of the show Alan Stafford found a schedule from an old newspaper. This is from the Derby Daily Telegraph, and here's what was on on night one of the finally registered BBC, December the 15th, 1922. Well, 2ZY Manchester had a concert from 6pm. 2LO London had a concert from 8pm, but their performers' names aren't listed, just like Manchester. 5IT Birmingham had children's stories from 6.30, news at 7, a concert at 7.15, and the first performer on that was Contralto Margaret Harrison. So congrats, Madge. You win a blankety-blank checkbook and pen because otherwise radio history hasn't recognised you, so we will. After her, Sinclair Davy, a tenor, a delightfully named baritone known just as Mr Bunch, a humorist called Harold Green, who technically then is the first comedian of the actual registered BBC, and then a police band... P.C. Wright on cornet, P.C. Jones on clarinet, and Mrs. Davy, the wife of the tenor Sinclair Davy, on piano. And the Birmingham engineer A.E. Thompson recalls rehearsing with that police band. In these experiments, which we used to carry on naturally in the mornings, I used to get the artists to come along and I used to place them in front of the microphone and then uh, switch on and listen on a, on a crystal set in the corridor of the factory to, to hear how it was coming out. That's how I could tell whether the balance was right and so on. Uh, for example, when we had the Birmingham City Police Band down there uh, one, one afternoon, well, I shifted them around until I got a very good transmission. Then I hammered brass nails in the floor so that when they turned up in the evening, everybody would know where to sit. <laughs> Well, the day after the BBC is registered, it's the weekend. Saturday, the 16th of December. Surely we can put our feet up. Well, the firm offers now go out to those first BBC employees. And the first one to be recruited is Major P.F. Anderson. His role of secretary had the most applications. 246 people went for that job. He would only last six months, but he was officially the first BBC employee. So he gets his place in the history books. Another 55 people applied for Director of Programmes, including Arthur Burroughs and Cecil Lewis, who technically was Director of Programmes at 2ZY Manchester, although it's thought that he hadn't really had a chance to do much up there. Like Reith, Cecil Lewis wouldn't have had much of a clue what radio was, until that summer at least. Lewis would have known radio was a new device for communicating plane to plane, until he arrived at 2ZY. He was recruited by a war buddy who recognised Lewis's bon viveur entertaining attitude and thought he'd be great for this new broadcasting craze. Cecil Lewis had delivered the first radio talk just the week before in December on flying in China, so he didn't know nearly as much as Arthur Burroughs, but he did know he had something to offer this radio game. So he interviewed for the same post as Arthur Burroughs. Lewis was actually favoured by many on the board, directors including Binion, Peace, McKinstry. They wanted Lewis. Why? Well... They were non-Marconi directors. Marconi's had had too big a stake for too long in this broadcasting thing. Arthur Burroughs knew broadcasting better than anyone, 
but he was Marconi through and through like a stick of rock. Lewis would be fresh, non-Marconi blood. But Burroughs, of course, got the job. But he recommended that Lewis be appointed as his deputy. And of course, that then pleased the rest of the board. So this radio production double act was born, Burroughs and Lewis, soon to be heard on air in the children's hour as Uncle Arthur and Uncle Caractacus. Finally, 39 people applied to be chief engineer. The one appointed was Mr R. H. White. He was the engineer at Tuolo that summer, but he barely even lasts hours, let alone days. More on why next episode. But some final words this time from David Hamilton, who I spoke to as he had just come off air from his show, broadcast from his home on Boom Radio. I'm not quite the demographic, but um, no. I, I, I loved it. And also my kids, you know, it's, everything's homeschool at the minute and we're on half term, which is no different to homeschool as far as I'm concerned. But my seven year old dancing around the kitchen to bring it on back the good times. Yes. And uh, Dusty Springfield. Uh, yes. With you. Um, they're uh, great songs, aren't they? And they just they just yeah. last and survive and thrive and find new generations. Yeah. Yesterday we had the launch show and uh, my my. Uh, Two of my granddaughters were listening. They're really young, and they're about seven and five. And uh, they rang me up afterwards and said, uh, "We heard your show. We love your music. <laughs> Isn't that great?" But you know, the funny thing is, and I've I've been listening to the station in the last couple of days, and I'm not, you know, putting it up because I I'm working for them. But um, I said to my wife, I said, "You know, who wouldn't like this music apart from people who want?" you know, rap or something, you know, totally different, who the, the, the vast majority of people will li listen to that music. And because a lot of it is from the gold. I mean, we played some modern stuff as well, but a lot of it is from what I call the golden era of, of music. And you, you had the Beatles, the Stones, Motown, which is really timeless. You know, you it, it's never dated. And um, all this wonderful music, I, it amazes me that so many radio stations have dropped it from their schedule and said, oh, no, that's going back too far. I think they're missing the point. You don't have to have been around in the 60s or the 70s to like that music. You know, you, you could you could be not even know it the first time and, and love it. You can be there from your home. And I'm, we're playing this on my phone or on my computer. Um, and it's on smart, smart speakers now and those sort of things. So radio always seems to be, it, like I said at the start, it's very it's adapting uh, really well, yes. I think, to, uh, to this modern world we're in. You have to remember that with the uh, old generation, the older generation of which I am um, part, they're not, uh, they are, I suppose you could call them technophobes, really. You know, we're not completely up with all the latest gadgets. And so it takes a little bit of time. We've had one or two people, uh, you know, ringing up and saying, we can't get it. And we're, we're trying to say to them, well, actually, you can get it pretty well anywhere because if it's not on DAB in your area, and it will be in more, uh, you'll get it uh, on your smartphone, you'll get it on your computer, uh, you'll get it on Alexa, and most people have got one of those, if not all of them, you know. So that's the changing face of radio, isn't it? David Hamilton has two fabulous books on his radio career, The Golden Days of Radio One and Commercial Radio Days. Links to those books are in the show notes, and he'll tell us all about them on a future episode from my radio boogieing seven-year-old 
To the veteran broadcaster David Hamilton, to John Reith himself, the line goes back a century. And back in our story, on that weekend of bliss, when Reith was high as a kite that he'd got his dream job, he spent his time asking everyone he knew about broadcasting and what it was. Reith just kept trying to turn conversation around to it. It sounds quite hilarious. Do you know what time the bus is due? <laughs> it's a bit like that uh, that broadcasting thing, isn't it? Is it? Do you know anything about it? Reith may have steered the ship for years to come, but for now he's essentially the captain of the ship holding a book titled Sailing an Ocean Liner for Dummies. So what does he do? Well, that Sunday, the 17th of December, the captain asks the first mate. Newly appointed director of programmes, Arthur Burrows. So next time on the podcast, Burrows shows Reith what's what, they find some new premises, they lose one of the only five employees they've got, and as Burroughs leaves the Marconi company for the BBC, we journey back to Burroughs' battle against Marconi's as the lone voice for the decade before, trying to convince them that broadcasting, not messaging, was the future. And for that, our guest will be Professor Gabriel Balby, Associate Professor of Media Studies at USI in Switzerland. Ah, oh, yes, David Hamilton one week, academics the next. We are like Celebrity University Challenge meets Baywatch. Sorry, I forgot it's audio. You can't see what I'm wearing. Oh, and have you heard? I've done a special episode for the History of England podcast. It's essentially the entire first season of this podcast, retold in approximately half an hour. Welcome if you've joined us having heard that episode. And if you've not, head to the History of England podcast. We'll put the link in the show notes. But it's only there for a couple of months. If you check in the future and it's not there, fear not. We'll post it here in a few months' time as a future special on this podcast. But thank you to the History of England podcast for having us. And welcome new listeners from there, including some who instantly signed up to Patreon. Michelle G, and I think Adam W and Tim W have come from there too. So welcome all, and thank you for instantly supporting us on Patreon. You're very kind. One of many things on Patreon this month is the full video interview with David Hamilton. So if you like what you hear, you can not only hear the full works, you can see him and me too on patreon.com slash paulcarenza. And for that video, you can just sign up to the minimum Patreon level. The British Broadcasting Century podcast is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. The original music is composed by Will Farmer. Archive clips are either public domain, being over 50 years old, or someone else's domain, but we can't quite find out who. The memo quoted was BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved. It belonged to the company. Now it belongs to the corporation. It's not ours. We're just reading it. With their permission. Stay informed, educated, entertained. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Patreon, rate, review us, all those sorts of things. And join us next time for more on Burroughs and Marconi's here on the British Broadcasting Century.